0: Father, this morning as we come to the Word, I pray that you would prepare our hearts. Just as we are wanting our hearts and our minds to be prepared as we observe Advent, as Mike said in his prayer, we, we anticipate, we wait, we anticipate that celebration on Christmas Day. Just as we ask that you prepare our hearts over the course of the next few weeks, we pray that you prepare our hearts right now. Just as you prepare our hearts for the living word, prepare our hearts for the written word. So Lord, this morning I pray that you'd forgive us of sin that we, that that you brought to our mind this morning, that we've committed this week. Maybe even this morning. Lord, forgive us of those sins. And Lord, we know that there are sins we commit. And there are sins that we um, simply Commit because we aren't even aware that we're not doing what you require. So our sins of commission, our sins of omission, Lord, we ask you to forgive us, cleanse us, and make us ready to hear your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to see you this morning. I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. The word elusive... According to the Webster's Dictionary, the word elusive means difficult to find, to catch, or to achieve. In our day and age, it almost seems that nothing is too elusive for modern man. Modern man has made astonishing intellectual achievements and has reached remarkable heights. Each year brings mind-blowing sci-fi-like technologies to our attention each year we see wonderful achievements in medicine or in genetic research stunning insights into cosmology and and brave exploits in the exploration of our solar system just as the other day a new um, space program was begun I believe it's called Orion with the goal of eventually getting man to Mars to recognize man's accomplishments the world gives out prizes Each year, Nobel Prizes are given in physics, in chemistry, in medicine, in literature, and economics. And the winners of those prizes are celebrated as world changers. Those men and women who have brought the greatest benefit on mankind. But one Nobel Prize, the prize that's probably the most famous of all the Nobel Prizes, represents the biggest thing that has and always will elude man. He has not been able to create a formula to generate it. He's not been able to create a technology to harness it. He's not been able to create an intellectual system to explain it. That elusive find, that fleeting object, that dream that no man has been able to fulfill is simply peace. For all that mankind has been able to do, he has never been able to find peace. As a simple search of any news website will show you, even from very recent events, from Ferguson, where peaceful protests turned violent, to concerns about how the keepers of peace in our society handle themselves, to seemingly unending violence in places like Syria, to terror groups like ISIS beheading Westerners, to the quiet, socially acceptable violence against the unborn that happens every minute of every day in our culture. Peace is elusive. Several years ago, a collection of scientists. Sociologists and historians produced some startling data. An extensive study concluded that in the roughly 6,000 years of recorded human history, the world has known during that entire period only 292 years of peace. So, in the recorded time of human history, there's only been 292 years of peace. That means less than 5% of recorded human history has been peaceful. During that 6,000-year period, there have been 14,351 wars in which 3.64 billion people have been violently killed. There have been over 8,000 peace treaties during those 6,000 years, most of which were eventually broken. And the value of the property destroyed would pay for a golden belt around the world 97.2 miles wide and 33 feet thick. And just in case anyone is tempted to think that mankind is at least progressing toward peace, well, the 20th century has been the bloodiest century on record. And our century, the 21st century, is well on its way to rivaling the previous one. Peace, it seems, is an unattainable goal for mankind. Yet we stand here this morning and we light the candle of peace. We light it in our Advent celebration, and some would say Christians are just naive, like the rest of the world, blindly hoping for something that's impossible to truly attain. To that we would say no. And furthermore, we believe that only a biblical worldview can provide both the answers as to why there is no peace in our world, and provide the answer as to how true peace can be found. For in this book right here, the Bible, we find the only true prescription for peace Peace with our fellow man, peace within our own hearts, and peace with our Creator. Apart from the answers found in Scripture, no advancement of mankind will produce peace. Matter of fact, man's advancements only seem to be used to destroy peace. Nobel, I can't remember his first name, but the guy, Nobel, after which the prizes are named, the reason he came up with and gave in his will money to start the Nobel Prizes was because one of his inventions invention of a a chemical called um, ballistics, I believe, which was a smokeless explosive similar to the word ballistics. It was used to make dynamite. His invention became the single most deadly invention in mankind. So he wanted to make these prizes so that people would pursue innovations that could somehow bring peace to mankind. So today... As we light our second candle of Advent, we want to focus our hearts and our minds on peace, on biblical peace. Peace that can come only through the one who is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, born of a virgin, 100% man, while never ceasing to be 100% God. And the Bible teaches us that it is only in this man, this God-man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, that true peace can be found. True hope, as we talked about last week. True love, as we will talk about next week, and true joy as well, as we'll talk about the last week before Christmas. Now, as I mentioned last week, we explored the theme of hope, that Jesus is our hope. And I took us to Romans 15, verses 8 through 13, and that text ended with a benediction. In that benediction, Romans 15:13 said, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And I gave four reasons from the preceding verses why Christians should abound in hope as that benediction calls for us to. Now today I want to give us another Pauline benediction. Remember a benediction is a prayer prayed to God but over God's people. It is asking God for a blessing as that very blessing is being pronounced over a people. So the one we're looking at today comes from, from 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 23 through 24. So please stand now. As we get ready to read this verse, which is already up on the screen, but I would encourage you to find it in your scriptures if you haven't already. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 through 24. A little short passage, which I want it to be sort of an outline for us to explore the, for us to explore the theme of peace this morning. First, Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 23. The word of the Lord says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that as we go to your word this morning that, um, that we would be faithful to it as we explore the concept, the theme of peace this morning and use this text as an outline to help us do it. Father, I pray that you would open up our ears to hear what your word says about peace and that you'd open up my mouth to speak the truth about peace. We pray all this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we have peace. Amen. Please be seated. Now, just as I hope that last week's text would help us get a deeper grasp of hope the hope we have in Christ. So too, I hope that, that this text will will help us get a better grasp of the peace we have in Christ. And as I said, I've already said a couple of times, I want to use this passage as, as sort of an outline to help us think about peace. Now, I I do not prefer to preach the way we're preaching during Advent season, which is topically. Each week we're preaching on a topic, hope, and this week peace. And and part of that is, is because when you preach like this. You end up having to use text kind of the way I'm using it today, and that is sort of a launching pad to go into a topic. So I just want to say up front, this is not my favorite way to preach. I'm always nervous when I get up and preach. I've never, I've never preached a single sermon without being nervous. I feel kind of like a—have um, uh, you ever seen those cooking shows on those reality channels, right? And there's the guys that are preparing the, the something, and they bring it to the master chef. And the master chef looks at it and says something along the lines of, oh, this is awful, or whatever, you know. And, and, or says, it's overcooked, or whatever he says, you know. And I feel kind of like I'm, I'm preparing during the week something to bring before our Lord. But, of course, our Lord isn't a, a grumpy old chef. By God's grace, he, he takes what we bring to him and graciously adds his touch to it. And hopefully you will find benefit from the work that I'm trying to do in the text this morning. But 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 through 24 is where we are going to be this morning. And as we think about peace, okay, we think about what the prophet Isaiah said in the text that was read um, even this morning in Isaiah 9, 6, that Jesus would be called the Prince of Peace. Humanity desperately needs peace, and it needs it on three levels. It needs peace with our fellow man, which is all that the world is seeking. And peace within our own soul, I should say the world is seeking that as well. But most of all, it needs peace with God. Mankind needs peace with God. And the Bible teaches us that that can only happen in reverse order. We must be at peace with God or we will never have peace within our own soul. And we will never be at peace with our fellow man. So in today's sermon, in today's um, text, I want us to consider the idea that during Christmas we celebrate the truth that the God of peace has given peace to his people... And what I want us to see that this morning, we have, we have this peace in Christ in three different ways. So at Christmas, we celebrate the truth that the God of peace has given peace to his people in three different ways. And I'm going to go ahead and bring all three of them up so that you can go ahead and fill in your notes, and we'll just go from there. First, it's an inaugurated peace due to the fact that Jesus came to his people. It's an inaugurated peace. Peace has begun <laughs> Because Christ came, it's an inaugurated peace due to the fact that Jesus came. He came in this advent that we're talking about is the birth of Christ, the arrival of the Messiah on the scene. Secondly, it is an increasing peace due to the fact that Jesus reigns in his people. This peace that we have not only with God, but this peace that we have with with others and within our own hearts should be a peace that we feel is increasing as we grow in holiness because Christ reigns in the hearts of his people. And thirdly, an impeccable peace. Due to the fact that Jesus will return for his people. This peace that we have is a perfect peace. Even if we can only taste it right now, one day we will taste it fully. It is a perfect, impeccable peace because Christ is returning. He is coming back for his people. So I'll back up here and we'll focus on the first point this morning. The inaugurated peace due to the fact that Jesus came to his people. There are two titles for God given in the two benedictions that we've considered. Last week's and this week's. Last week's title was the God of hope. And this week's is the God of peace. So I want us to think about peace this morning. How is it that God is the God of peace? And so what I want to focus on at the very beginning of this passage, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, is simply those first few words, Now may the God of peace The God of Peace. Let's just meditate upon that title for a second. The God of Peace. That title can only be used by man for God if man is at peace with God. Otherwise, God is a God of war. For God must execute a just war against Insurrectionist insurrectionists, against rebels, against those who are trying to overthrow his reign. And that's what all men are doing without Christ. For only in Christ can man be at peace with God. The Old Testament saints, our Old Testament brothers and sisters in faith, looked forward to a day when God would, would somehow provide peace. God had shown them in in Genesis chapter 34, verses 6 through 7, it says that God shows Moses his back, his back parts. God had shown them his back in these verses when it says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that sounds so glorious and so peaceful, and it is. But then the next words are terrifying. Because in the very next breath, the Lord says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Upon seeing, and this is the revelation that God gave of himself to Moses when Moses asked, God, show me your glory. And God says, I'll pass before you, but you can only see my back. And so upon seeing God's back, Moses had to be wondering, as must have the rest of the Israelites with whom Moses shared this revelation, how can this be? How can man know and experience the peace of God... How can they, they know the God that Genesis 34, 6 teaches, a God of mercy and grace, of slowness to anger and steadfast love, of faithfulness and forgiveness of sin, a God of peace. How can they know that God because that same God is the God who by no means clears the guilty, who justly deals with iniquity, generation after generation, a God of justice who wars against sinners. For Psalm 5.5 tells us that God hates all evildoers. And who is there who hasn't done evil in God's sight? What a dilemma for mankind. How could they experience peace with a God who hates sin? Who battles against sin? Hebrews 13.3 says that God is a man of war. Psalm 24.8 says that he is mighty in battle. And in many places we read that he is the Lord of hosts. That word hosts means armies. He is the Lord of armies, of angels. How could any man have peace with such a holy God? How is he both a God of war and a God of peace? So our, New Test- our Old Testament brothers and sisters had no alternative but to hope in faith that God would provide the answer, that God himself would close the gap They looked in faith and in hope for a deliverer, for a redeemer, for their sins to be fully and finally atoned for. And everything they did, from the the sacrifices that they carried out to to the way they did worship, pointed to that redeemer. They hoped for a prince of peace. And what mere created mediator, what arbitrator less than divine could have met and answered this hope that they had? Who could reveal Yahweh as a God of peace? Who could make known the mystery of his eternal thoughts and of reconciliation and peace with men? Only one could do that. Jesus, the God-man, the Prince of Peace. And if the God of peace had not assumed the initiative, if he had not taken the first and only effectual step in declaring a way of peace for our fallen world, if he had not looked within himself and there found in the person of his beloved son, the peacemaker between God and man, we would be without hope. And so we might as well blow out last week's candle if we don't realize who Jesus is. That's why we celebrate. That's why we are filled with joy at the Christmas season, for Jesus came according to Zechariah, the the father of John the Baptist, Upon John being born, he, he breaks out in song in Luke one seventy nine and he says that, that that this that Jesus was going to come to guide our feet into the way of peace. So so that now in Christ more than merely the back parts of God can be seen. For in Christ the fullness of deity dwells bodily. For he is the image of the invisible God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. God has turned around and in Christ we behold his glory. For Christ has brought peace to God's people so that now we can be with God and not at war with God. Jesus is our peace. So as the, as the New Testament era dawns, we read in Luke chapter 2 verse 14 that the host, the army of angels, come to the earth. But they do not come to make war with man. But instead they come with a song. A song that says this, glory to God in the highest and on earth Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace on earth is the is is what the army comes now to declare. The hosts of heaven come with a divine olive branch from the Lord of Hosts, an offer of amnesty, a divine pardon, a declaration of peace. And the angels were singing because the Prince of Peace put flesh on. The Christ was born as a newborn babe. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Jesus is the only reason the Apostle Paul can call God the God of peace. Isn't it interesting that only in the New Testament God is called the God of peace five times? Here in this text, in Romans fifteen thirteen, in Romans sixteen twenty, in Philippians four nine in Hebrews 13, 20, and then in 1 Thessalonians three sixteen, 16, he's called the Lord of peace. It's not that God has changed in the New Testament, but that now in the New Testament, a divine means by which God can be a God of peace, to sinful man, and not a God of war, has come. And that man is Jesus. The only way we have the first half of Exodus 34, 6 through 7, The only way we can apply the first half of Exodus 34, 6 through 7 to us, and not the second half, is through Jesus. In Christ, peace with God has been inaugurated, which in turn inaugurates peace within our own hearts and inaugurates the only true peace we can have with fellow man. Again, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Meaning that peace is only for those who are in Christ. Peace is only for those with whom God is pleased. And God is pleased with those who are in Christ. And glory be to God that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1.4. And then according to Revelation 13.8, the names of the redeemed were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. Of the Lamb who was slain. So, God did not become the God of peace in the New Testament. He has always been a God of peace for those who are His, for we were found united to the Prince of Peace before the world ever began. And that's a glorious truth. He's always been our God of peace. And if you're wondering this morning, well, how do I know if He is to me a God of peace instead of a God of war? How do I know if my name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Answer to your question is simply this. Will you turn from your sin, which is war against God, and sincerely call, sincerely call upon Jesus the peacemaker and put all of your hope in him? Will you do what Jesus tells you to do? And that is to take his yoke upon you. To take, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. There's the peace you need. The rest you need for your soul is only by coming to Christ Repenting of your sin and putting all your hope in him. If you will do that then, then you know. <laughs> but oh, let us meditate upon how we have been brought to peace with God this morning. So let us go to Romans 5 and consider some words from there. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God. through whom we have now received reconciliation. Friends, reconciliation is peace. And if you think I'm exaggerating this morning, when I say that you are at war with God, Paul uses the language of us being enemies of God prior to being in Christ. Colossians 1.19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This peace that we have come into is an inaugurated peace purchased by Christ and a peace promised from long ago. And more than that, we also see that it is an increasing peace due to the fact that Jesus reigns in our hearts. Increasing peace. Not in a judicial sense, for we were judicially declared at peace with God the moment we confessed him as Lord. A moment we just observed which is secured in eternity past. But Christians experience an increase in practical peace as we grow in Christ, as we grow in holiness. So let's go back to today's text, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. We increase in our experience of God's peace as we grow in holiness. Let me say that again. We increase in our experience of God's peace as we grow in holiness. And as we grow in holiness, we experience an increase of our peace within our own hearts. And we increase in our peace with our fellow man. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. As to make you holy. The God of peace is making us holy. And the more we grow in holiness, the more we grow in peace. Let me... Read another benediction to you from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Another place where the word, the title God of peace is used. Now may the God of peace who who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Let me pause right there. So There's that focus on the, the God of peace. How is he the God of peace? Because the shepherd experienced violence so that the sheep might have peace. So may the God who did that, and continuing in Hebrews 13, verse 21 here, the God who did that, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our peace was purchased so that we might live differently. Our peace with God was purchased so that we might now live differently so that we might live holy lives. Peace was inaugurated and now peace should be increasing as we are sanctified. There is a very clear connection in the Scriptures between holiness and peace. The path of peace is is found parallel with the path of purity and obedience in the Scriptures. And walking on that path, God as the God of peace meets his children and says to them, Shalom, peace be with you. To walk closely with God is to walk in progressive sanctification. Let us consider that the holiness-peace connection for a moment here this morning. It's all over the scripture, this holiness and peace connection. Well, first of all, what is holiness? Holiness is the absence of sin. Sin is the source of all strife. Sin is the reason we fight against God. It is the reason we are restless within our own souls. And it is the reason we quarrel with other men. So as sin decreases, guess what? Peace increases. Peace increasing with God for as we are sanctified, we are growing in our love for him and our submission to his lordship. Peace increasing in our own hearts as we put sin to death. And peace increasing with others as we grow in sacrificial love toward our fellow man. Now let's look at some of the places we see this connection between holiness and peace. And the first place I'm going to take you is Matthew 5, verse 43. Of course, we studied this recently as we went through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Let me pause right there. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about peace. Peace within our relationships. Peace with our relationships even with our enemies. And then he says this in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Peace with your enemies, peace with other people is the fruit of you growing in perfection, growing in holiness. Hebrews twelve fourteen says this, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's this connection between peace and holiness. And of course, that sanctification which produces peace should be most evident in the church, shouldn't it? Within this body of believers, that's where the peace should really be evident. Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So there's this, this sanctification that's happening there in the body. And then it says in verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body. As peace rules, sanctification happens. Peace in the church flows out of holiness, out of battling sin, and out of fighting for Christlikeness. But unfortunately, in the church, we are oftentimes tempted to pursue peace at the expense of holiness. Aren't we? Aren't we tempted in the church to pursue peace and unity? At the expense of holiness, it's easy in the church to call for unity and to call for peace, but it's hard to call for holiness. The result is that we often find ourselves tolerating sin instead of dealing with sin. The Apostle Paul does not call on us to tolerate sin in one another for the sake of peace but instead to pursue true unity by actually addressing sin and pursuing holiness together. That very next verse in that Colossians passage I just read, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The word admonish means to warn. Elsewhere we are told to correct one another. We are told to speak hard truths with sincere love. The, the scripture that precedes the passage we're focusing on today, this first Thessalonians passage... ...beginning in verse 13 of chapter 5, says this... ...be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil... ...but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances... For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The fight for peace in the church isn't a fight devoid of the fight for holiness. They go together, they are connected at the hip. You can't fight for peace in the church while ignoring holiness in the church. It doesn't work that way. Paul mixes them all together in the scripture. You want peace? Then admonish one another. Warn one another. Correct one another. Harbends, if we get along but refuse to deal with sin and even choose to tolerate sin, even seemingly insignificant forms of evil, then the supposed peace that we have is no true peace. It's no true peace. It's not a peace that comes from the Prince of Peace, but merely an elusive peace that comes from the flesh. Things might be quiet for a while, but festering sin will cause the whole body to stumble. Supernatural, God-wrought peace is a peace that addresses sin, pursues corporate holiness, which leads the body to grow in genuine love and lasting unity. Now, I had conversations over the past few weeks with different people, and and one of my conversations was brought up. Well, how, do we, how do we address sin in the church? And, and this text was brought up. And, and the person I talked to knows who I'm talking, uh, who knows about this conversation. But I'm going to mention this text. First Peter four verse eight says that we are to keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. All right? And that is true. Love covers a multitude of sins. Yes. Yes, yes, but but what does that love look like that covers a multitude of sins? What does it look like? And remember, our hermeneutics class, right? Our hermeneutics class, we interpret scripture in light of scripture. So, let's let's see what that love looks like from James, James five nineteen. My brothers, if anyone Among you, wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. True love for one another seeks true holiness in one another. True love for one another seeks and pursues and fights for true holiness in one another. But we don't want that. We don't, our flesh doesn't want that. We want a false peace that shatters the moment someone even dares to mention sin. I don't want a church of false peace. I want you telling me when I've sinned so that I can be walking in faithfulness and lockstep with God our Father and with a peace a peace It goes much, much deeper than just a peace where we overlook sin. Let us deal with sin carefully, lovingly, but let us not avoid it for the sake of some sort of false unity. So we should have increasing peace with others, especially in the church, but also increasing peace within our own souls as we cultivate personal holiness so look at, the, look, at the, look at the connection between holiness and peace in the, what's the most famous peace passage in all of Scripture? Okay? Especially when someone's dealing with inner turmoil. Come on. Philippians 4, right? I want you to see the connection between holiness and the peace that we so often quote. Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And we so conveniently stop right there. But then Paul immediately goes into holiness. He says this in the next verse. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, we try to divorce inner peace from inner holiness. Oh, we we quote First uh, Philippians four, six, and seven, and. Say, oh, the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard my heart and my mind. We try to get through this turmoil we're facing in life. And then we go about life not doing anything that Paul says. Where are we to fix our minds? We are to pursue holy thinking. If we don't pursue holy thinking, we can't expect a peace that transcends all understanding. If you want the the peace of God, you got to walk in holiness before the God of peace. When we walk with the God of peace and holiness, then the peace of God makes us whole. We must see the connection between holiness and peace. Even if you go back back to the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. Okay, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What's the next Beatitude? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. James 3.18 says, a harvest of righteousness, holiness, is sown in peace. By those who make peace. So in Christ, we have inaugurated peace due to the fact that Jesus came to his people. We have increasing peace due to the fact that Jesus reigns in his people. And finally, we have impeccable peace due to the fact that Jesus will return for his people. Back to our text, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 through 24. I'll read it all again. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. There's that holiness completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. What? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You may not have perfect peace now, either inside your own heart or with, even within the church. Obviously, we don't have perfect peace. But guess what? He who started that peace in you, he's going to complete it. He's going to finish it. So we can hold firm to impeccable peace. We celebrate this advent of peace as we look forward to the final advent of peace. We know that one day the impeccable peace, that impeccable peace will exist between men. For, for Christ, when he returns, he will gather his saints to himself. And this text that I'm about to read will be fully realized. I love this text. It was almost going to be my choice of text for this morning. But I, I decided to go with the first Thessalonians passage. But Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one, now this is speaking of of relationships between Jews and Gentiles, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, killing that that warrior-like hostility that every sinner has toward God. And he came and preached peace to you you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. One new man, perfect unity, perfect holiness, perfect peace. One day that scripture will be fully realized. An impeccable peace. And our enemy, the instigator, the one who tempts our flesh, and our flesh is already predisposed to quarreling because we want what we want. And so we quarrel, we fight. And so that's our flesh. But Satan loves to instigate us, to put things in front of us, to fight about. Well, one day that instigator, he will be fully vanquished as well. Romans sixteen nine, For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. There's that sanctification again. And then verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I love that text. The God of peace is going to crush Satan. Unlike the treaties that men have devised over 8,000 years, over 6,000 years of recorded history, all of those 8,000 different treaties, God's terms, terms of peace cannot be broken, for he is the peacemaker and the peacekeeper. His peace will increase into eternity forever and ever and ever. And that's the peace Jesus came to secure, Isaiah 9. Verse 6, let me read this again. Let's just think about these glorious words that have been read a couple of times already this morning. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Impeccable. Peace, Oh, Christian, let us celebrate peace this Christmas. Celebrate the advent of the one who is peace. But celebrate it practically by being a peacemaker. You who say you are a Christian, friends, if you are a Christian, you are a child of peace. And so you, now, you are now an emissary of peace. So I want to conclude this morning with this text. Second Corinthians 5.17. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Yes this world continues to war against its maker. But we are emissaries of peace. We are not soldiers of war. Our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness. In regards to our fellow man, we come with feet fitted with the gospel of peace. So we go into the world this Christmas, Christians, I urge you to go into the world this Christmas, not as a warrior fighting some perceived war on Christmas. Forget about the war on Christmas. No, I want you to go into your homes, your workplaces, your schools, your gathering places. I want you to go into those places with terms of peace. Terms of peace that say, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to take those terms of peace to the world. So go, go tell it on the mountain that the elusive peace... That every human soul longs for has been found. Doing so will not win you a Nobel Prize, but do it so that Christ might win the prize of his suffering. Lost sheep coming to peace with their God. Do it for the prize that he died for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, I beg you, Lord, to take any of this platter of this sermon that is undercooked, overcooked, poorly cooked, and strike it. Strike it from the palates of the people in this body. And instead, let your solid truth stand. Lord, I pray that we would be people of peace. Lord, it's so tempted, Father, it's so tempting during this season especially, to get all riled up and angry because some little town in some nowhere part of our country got rid of their manger scene because the ACLU sued them. That's not the war we're supposed to be fighting. No, the war we fight, Father, is against spiritual forces of darkness and the the message we take to our fellow man... Is a message of reconciliation. Father, make us ambassadors. Make us the people you want us to be this Christmas, no matter where we go, no matter who we come into contact with. And I pray this, Lord, for myself as well. Help me to be a better ambassador of peace. So, Father, I pray that you would just help us to grow in holiness this Christmas. How hard it is, Father, to grow in holiness. When materialism is all around us. When there's a thousand things pulling at us during the Christmas season, a thousand different unholy pursuits. So Father, help us to be holy. Make us humble. Help us to be people who truly do reflect the reality that we are at peace. We are at peace within our own hearts because we're at peace with God. We're at peace with you, Father. And therefore, we should be people who can be at peace with others, especially in the body. Lord, I pray for Harbin's, I was convicted this week as I sat and talked with a fellow brother in Christ who said, I don't want to go to a church that's just known for good preaching. I want to go to a church that's known for love. So Father, I was greatly convicted because all the commendations that we read in Scripture for the churches was that they loved each other and it was so evident. Everyone saw it. I don't recall a single senior pastor being mentioned in the epistles. So Lord, help us to be at peace with each other. And as we go out into the world, I know to a certain degree we can't be at peace with the world because the world hates you. But Father, don't let us be people who fight with our fists up. Help us to be people who fight with our hands out, bringing terms of peace. Sharing the gospel, the only, the only way that man will ever, ever know peace. And Lord, if there be anyone in this room that doesn't know that peace, I pray this morning that they would speak to someone, whether myself or another member of our church, about how, how do they come into the realization of that peace. Lord, we pray all these things in the precious name of our Savior, our Prince of Peace. We love you, Jesus. And we pray it in your name. Amen.